As Mr. Elder Pastor Paul said, my name is Adam. It's good to see you. I feel like there might be a few visitors here, and we're really thankful that you're here. But I should tell you, I'm not usually the person who does this. Um, our lead pastor, Mike Smith, uh, is taking a weekend to rest a little bit. Uh, if you did listen last week, uh, you heard that uh, his family was going a lot through some heartache. Uh, his second cousin slash nephew was very sick and actually passed away later that evening. So the funeral was just yesterday. And so Mike and Tammy drove back from the funeral and are taking this weekend to rest a bit more. They went to their cabin, uh, to their hiding place uh, over there in the hills. And it's a beautiful spot to get some rest. And a beautiful spot to wrestle with the question that human beings have been asking themselves for all of eternity, for all of our existence. What can the God of the mountain have to say to me in the valley? What does the God of the mountain have to say to me as I'm in the valley? It's clear that Mike and Tammy and their family and, of course, many of us have found ourselves walking through the valley we might say the valley of the shadow of death. It's been a heavy week. It's been a heavy several years. We're carrying grief along with us, and it would be good for us to ask this question. What does the God of the mountain have to say to us who are walking in the valley? As we know, he's the God of the mountain, be it Mount Ararat, where he made a promise to Moses, or Mount Moriah, where he made a promise to Abraham, or Mount Sinai, where he made a promise to Moses and to his people that he would make them his people, be it Mount Zion, where he had a covenant with David and the people, be it the mountains that we cast our eyes upon and wonder, where does my help come from? He is the God of the mountain. But what of us when we're walking in the valley? Thankfully, it's the very question that actually Mark is trying to answer. We've been going through the book of Mark. We made it to chapter 9. We're going to sit here for a while probably, but I'm going to try to kind of look at chapter 9 as a whole a little bit today. And in some ways, Mark is asking that very same question. What does the God of the mountain have to say to us who are in the valley? Because it's actually the very question that his audience was asking. I think we mentioned this at one point, but Mark wrote his account of who Jesus is to be first read by the church in Rome, being persecuted, those who were watching their loved ones perish under the heel of empire. They were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and they were wondering, what does the God of the mountain have to say to us? Where is this kingdom that we had heard about? And so Mark translating for Peter, had taken the story that Peter had lived and, and, and that the Spirit had inspired, and he put it down to help them wrestle with that question. So he's wrestling with this question for us in, in chapter 9. We can start in verse 2. Here's how it goes. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There was... There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah, 
Mount Carmel with Elijah, and Moses, Mount Sinai, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, but he was talking anyway, and they were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Listen to what the Son of God has to say, the God of the mountain. Listen to what he has to say for those of us who are walking through the valley. Listen to him. They, they, they went up this mountain together. Uh, Peter, James, and John had this privilege. And, and Jesus is leading up the, them up the mountain, and they must have thought this is going to be good. <laughs> they knew their history. They must have been anticipating how good it was going to be. They're going up the mountain with Jesus. It, it, it automatically had to put them on high alert, clue them into the fact that God might have something to say, might be on the move. God had moved on the mountaintops. In fact, Mark wants us to remember that. He wants us to remember that. He said, after six days, that's actually not Mark's MO. He usually says almost nothing about the passage of time. I actually usually find Mark a little bit frustrating to read because it seems like he's in a hurry and he just is kind of like giving the bare bones. But the truth is, actually, he was in a hurry. He had to get his message out. But here he says, after six days. He gives us a detail he normally wouldn't give. And this is important to us in a couple of different ways. One, we have to ask ourselves, six days after what? Because our tendency is to kind of look at a little passage and forget what Mark has said before. But Mark didn't forget what he said, so we better not forget it either. Six days after what? Six days after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Six days after Jesus said, you're right. Six days after Jesus said, and I have to suffer. Six days after Peter said, never, not on my watch. Six days after Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Six days after Peter had a really hard time sleeping. <laughs> Six days. Six days after Jesus said, here's what it's going to look like to follow after me. It's going to look like carrying your cross. It's going to look like denying yourself. Six days after Jesus had talked about the cost of discipleship. Here, Mark wants us to remember where we're coming from. And he actually is so adamant about it that he puts this in a, in a sort of sandwich. They actually call this a Markin sandwich on account of it's sandwiched. If you look at the end of chapter 8, Jesus is talking about, I have to suffer. And then if you look near the end of chapter 9, Jesus is again talking about, yes, I'm the Christ, but I have to suffer right? This is uh, starting in verse 30. So you have these, these, these two bookends. And Mark does this when he wants you to pay close attention to the way that these things work together. How can we reconcile that the God of the mountain is himself going to suffer? He wants us to hold this together. The, the in-between is what we might call a, a pericope. It's a, it's a passage that is intended to be understood all at once, not just torn apart word by word, but understood together. Mark has put the guide rails together, and he said, pay attention, please. Pay attention. The God of the mountain has something to say to those of us who are going in through the valley. Pay attention, please. That's what Mark's on about. There's, the other reason we have to uh, take a little bit of a, uh, a break and a pause when it says after six days is because uh, Mark wants us to recall 
that there was another time where a trip up a mountain took place after six days. Moses. Moses, after six days of preparation, met with God on the mountaintop. In fact, Moses, you can see it in Exodus chapter 24, if you like, Moses went up the mountain with three named people. He had a bunch of others too, but he had three that had names, or three that were allowed to know their names. There were 70 other people with him, but three. And, and, and so Moses goes up this mountain, and then in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses has been waiting six days and has gone up the mountain with three people, then there's, well, there's a cloud. There's a cloud. God's presence is, 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 is made clear. He helps us to pay attention to his presence through the cloud. And, and there's a voice, right? Mark wants us to remember that there's this God, this God of the mountaintop. So, so he's got us focused in on it. He says these things. After six days, there's a transfiguration, which also happens to Moses, whose, whose face, his skin is shining after he's met with God, right? And, and there's a cloud, and there's a voice, and there's three people, and all of these things. And so Mark wants us to remember there's these mountains. There's these mountains. And at this mountain, the veil is pulled back. From time to time, this happens. The, the Irish call it a thin place. A thin place where, where, where what is sometimes elusive is, 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 is almost tangible. Where the unseen things are experienced. It's this thin place. The veil is pulled back. Jesus is transfigured. But it's not like Moses' transfiguration. Moses is like the moon reflecting the the, 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 the shining sun. But, but not Jesus. The light emanates from Jesus. This passage wants us to know that Jesus is not like Moses where he's a servant of God. We're meant to understand that Jesus has equality with God. The, the light is shining forth from him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3 of chapter 1 that, that Jesus is the radiance of God. Shine the shining light of God. And, and so we're seeing the veil torn back. We're seeing reality as it is. We're seeing, well, a rather enchanted reality. Something more than meets the eye. More than we might normally admit. More than we might normally pay attention to. This veil is being torn back and, 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 and pulled back. And, and wouldn't it be so good for us for that to happen routinely? Because, let's be honest, we imagine ourselves to have graduated from enchantment. Have we not? Enlightenment moving forward. We know that lightning isn't Zeus's anger. It's atmospheric conditions. We, we know that these convulsions of the boy that's coming next in the valley are not it's, not, it's not a demon, it's epilepsy. We imagine ourselves to have graduated beyond enchantment. We think we've moved past all those myths of ages gone by. But it would be so good for us to, to pause for a second and realize that we are not seeing clearly. 
we're not seeing clearly. Certainly, there are things that have changed. Some, some things have shifted in history, but much remains the same. We, we, we travel to the, the ancient lands of Greece, and we say, look at how they built this, this, uh, this temple here on the, on the hillside. Look at how they dedicated it to Athena and how they worshipped her. Isn't that so quaint? Well, we remember that Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And we, we are actually reminded that there are many people out there who have actually placed their entire identity and their ability at school and their insights, uh, can I say it? Their worshiping intellect. They don't call it Athena, maybe, but they're worshiping it. I've been guilty that way. And, and, and we travel through the forum in ancient Rome and we see how they dedicated temples to Mars. And we say, ah, the Mars, power and war. We say, oh, well, we, we don't worship. We, we don't think God is sending us off to war like that anymore. We've graduated. But we realize there are so many people who are finding their safe place in the halls of power. Saying, it's power that will give me rest. It's power that will set me free. When I have power, I will sleep easily. They imagine themselves to be disenchanted, but they are, in fact, still enchanted with the same gods of old. We walk through Corinth, and we see that they have made their main goddess Aphrodite. Beauty, sexuality. We don't have to talk too long before we all realize that that is one of the main gods that we worship still. It is good for the veil to be pulled back for us so we can see reality as it is. Reality is enchanted. We are enchanted. We are worshiping something. When the veil is pulled back, like this, the question becomes, are we worshiping the right thing? Are we worshiping what we ought to worship? Because if Paul is to be believed, in Romans chapter 1, the problem all finds its way back to what are we worshiping? All the sickness unto death that we are swimming in all the time, all, the, all of it works its way back to what? Are we worshiping? We have no choice about whether or not we're going to worship. I do believe we have a choice about what we're going to worship. We need to take the time to consider that we are enchanted. We need to carefully choose what we allow to enchant us. What it is we will worship, I think we'll get inside if we think about how we spent our time. I think we'll get insight if we think about how we spent our money. I think we'll get insight if we, if we think about where our mind wanders in times of stress when we're walking through the valley. I think we'll get insight into what we're enchanted by. And it's a very important question. And not just eternally. It's an important question for here and now. Because what we worship will disciple us. It will. How many of us are walking around discipled by Zeus or Mars, Ares or Athena, Aphrodite or Apollo? 
When there's only one, there's only one who's worthy of our worship, who we ought to let enchant us, ought to let disciple us. And Mark wants us to know that. Who is it that led them up the mountain? Jesus led them up the mountain. No one else could. When the voice rang out, was it the voice of Moses? Law? It was not. Was it the voice of Elijah? Uh, insights into reality? No, it was not. It was the voice of God the Father saying, this one, this is my son, listen to him. Be enchanted by him. Pay attention. Be discipled by him. It's true that Peter needed to be discipled. Peter didn't know what to say, but he said something anyway. <laughs> uh, maybe that was, a th I don't know, maybe Athena. Like he wanted to show how smart he or the insight. What did he say? He said, we should build three shelters. We should do it. We should build three, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. Like they were equal. He needs to be disciple, kids. He didn't understand that the law and the prophets point to Jesus. He fulfills all they ever could have hoped and he goes beyond them. Moses, the murderer. Moses, the impatient. Moses, the reluctant. Oh, but the faithful one, Jesus, is none of those things. He's the God of the mountain who has something to say to us, those of us who go down into the valley, who are in the valley. Elijah, remember what he did to those kids? Remember how pouty he was when things didn't go right? You know how many days he ran? Forty. How many days was Jesus in the desert? Forty. Jesus surpasses them all. Every once in a while, Jesus will say something like that. He'll say, one greater than Solomon is here. I'm telling you, one greater than Moses and Elijah is here. Listen to this one. Listen to this one. Listen to Jesus. He's superior. We need to be discipled by him. But then something interesting happens, perhaps unexpected. Peter's instinct is much like my own. Peter's instinct is to wrap his arms around the moment and cling to it and say, I'm never moving. <laughs> like when we shake a hand of a celebrity and say, I'm never washing my hand again. It's kind of like he wants, to, he wants to set up shop. He wants to build a structure around it, maybe a pilgrimage. We could have a sandwich shop over here and a coffee. It'll be great. People will come to us. We'll sequester ourselves from the reality. We'll stay here. We're safe here. It's good here. Let's stay here. It's good for us to be here. But Jesus has something else in mind. Jesus goes down into the valley. It's not the first time. This is just the incarnation all grown up. We see when the veil is pulled back the reality that Jesus has experienced for all of eternity, and then we see Jesus walk down the mountain into the valley. That's exactly what happened in Bethlehem. 
Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but instead was willing to take on the form of, of one enslaved to their flesh, one who is uh, willing to be planted in the ground through a death that was so horrific. He goes into the valley for us. Hey, but on, on Peter's behalf, I'd like to say, they went with him. They did. Peter, James, and John, they followed after him. And I think pretty quickly we see why Jesus had to go into the valley. Here's what it says. Actually, we'll skip down to verse 14. On account of time. It says this. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd. Jesus, in his glory, could not stay on the mountain when there was a large crowd who needed him in the valley. His glory and his goodness are wrapped up together and are inextricably linked. And what was going on with this crowd? Well, they were arguing. They're at it again. The disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law. Seems that the disciples have tried to help free this child who had been enslaved one of the ones that Jesus had in mind when he went down into the valley, like the one who was still lost off the path. Even though there might be 99 in the fold, there was this one Jesus had in mind. He had to go down from the mountaintop into the valley. And when he got there, there was a crowd, and they were arguing. And they were, they were also, I think, probably embarrassed. The disciples had failed. If you read here, it says, that they were arguing, and then the crowd runs to Jesus, and Jesus says, why were you arguing to his disciples? And a man said, hey, listen, this is verse 17, teacher, I brought you, you my son. He's possessed by a spirit. You see the veil is still being pulled back. He's been robbed of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing of teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive him out, but he couldn't. But they couldn't. We find out at the end it's because they didn't even bother to pray. Back in chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus has said, okay, I'm giving you authority. But the disciples had forgotten that this is a delegated authority, not one to prop themselves up with, not, not one that they could hold on to, not one that was meant to be used for their own good, not one that you grip, but one you let go. It reminds us of Genesis 1 where it says that, that God had made people in his image so that they could have dominion. And then Adam and Eve had tried to grip it and hold on to it for their own good. And they had forgotten that they are not where the light starts. They're only the mirror. They're the mirror like Moses. It's not for them to hold on to, it's for them to give away. How many times has the church been guilty of saying, let's set this up, let's grip onto it tight, let's have a system, they'll come to us, we'll have a bookshop, it'll be great. And they forgot they were only the mirror. Many theologians say that to be human is to be the angled mirror of creation. We reflect God's glory into creation. So when they were confronted with this evil spirit, they thought, hey, we got authority, let's do this. They didn't even bother to pray. 
In the valley, they had forgotten, apparently, that they needed the presence of Jesus. There's only really one person who gets it right in this section. Well, two. Jesus, you got it right. And then this other guy. It's the father. While everyone was fighting, posturing, positioning themselves, there was still this suffering child and a brokenhearted dad. Still in chains. Still not sure where freedom could be found, but the father brought the son to Jesus. And in verse 24, he says this breathtaking thing. He says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. All the posturing of the teachers of the law and the disciples, all the wielding of the power, all the gripping onto it for their own good was to not, no avail. But this humble father who didn't have perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness, teaches us a lesson. First of all, he reminds us where to go in times of trouble, where our help comes from. But second, he reminds us of this beautiful truth, the kind of truth that you could hold on to in the valley, the kind of truth that is what the God of the mountain has to say to us in the valley. He says... Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my weaknesses. I am weak. And so we realize it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of what we put our faith in. This dad didn't have amazing faith. But he put his faith in the one thing that was worth putting his faith in. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like a movie. Imagine yourself in this action film and in, in, the, in the sort of forward motion of the, of the plot. You have found yourself at the edge of a cliff and here come the bad guys. Maybe there's a lot of them. I'm not sure. But you get to this point where you realize there's this, 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 this leap and you can't make it. It's too far. But you look over the edge of the cliff and there's these three branches and you just think kind of yourself, which branch will hold me? If I leap and I grab a hold of it, which one will hold and, and here's the thing. It's not like you have all of this strength that you're mustering. You have no choice. You're just leaping. You, just, you have no choice. But when you leap onto the right branch, I'd suggest it's Jesus, and it holds, you realize it wasn't the strength of your faith in the branch. It was the strength of the branch that saved you. It's Jesus that can lead us up the mountain it's Jesus who joins us in the valley. It's Jesus who takes our repentant helplessness and makes it whole. The disciples asked later, why couldn't we do it? He said, you got you to do this through prayer. And the end of this pericope in verse 29, you, you need me. You need my presence. Wherever you are, mountaintop, valley, you need me. But I want to tell you there's more good news that Mark has in mind for us. Because Mark wants us to think about not just the mountain of the transfiguration, although he does want us to think about that. He wants the, the, the persecuted church in Rome to remember the glory of Jesus. And he, he wants you to remember Mount Sinai. He does. And how the law and the prophets point to Jesus. 
But there's another mountain that Mark wants us to think about. Mount Calvary. How many people flanked Jesus at the transfiguration? The answer is two. How many people flanked Jesus on Mount Calvary? The answer is two. How many witnesses are named at the transfiguration? The answer is three. How many witnesses are named on Mount Calvary? The answer is three. Which prophet is at the transfiguration? Elijah. Which prophet is invoked at Mount Calvary when they say, leave him alone, let's see if Elijah comes to get him down? Oh, it's Elijah. What truth is pointed out at the transfiguration? The voice of God rings out and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is the son of God. And what truth rings out at the death of Jesus? The centurion says, surely this was the son of God. What can the God of the mountain have to say to those of us who are in the valley? I am with you. My strength is enough. When you are weak, you are strong. Follow me. I was faithful to go into the valley after the one. Come with me. I'll be with you even until the ends of the age is what Jesus says on yet another mountain in Galilee at the Ascension. Actually, this week was Ascension Day. Happy Ascension Day. What do we learn about Ascension? We learn that Jesus is king. What did it say on the cross? Jesus is the king of the Jews. So the transfiguration show us, it shows us that Jesus in reality is enthroned. This is something that we can remember. This is what the God of the mountain has to say to us in the valley. I am king now and forever. I am with you now and forever. I came after you and I'd do it again. The God of the mountain has a great deal to say to those of us who might be walking through the valley. And he's right here with us to say it. But there are things that have to be a gut check for us. Like they were a gut check for Peter. Do you know that Peter got it together? You know this embarrassing string where Peter says, I'll never let you die. And Jesus says, you're kind of like Satan right now. And then another time, Peter doesn't know what to say, but he talks anyway and all these things. And later he swings his, you know, that, you know what? Who told us those stories? Peter did. He finally let go of all the posturing and the positioning and the strength that he thought he held. And in repentant helplessness, he was made whole. I think Peter probably eventually had to ask himself a few questions. A few questions that I think we should ask ourselves as we think for just a moment about what God has to say to us who might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. What am I worshiping? Not what do I believe in, but what am I worshiping? Those are not actually the same. Take an inventory 
and let it speak to you about what you're worshiping. What am I allowing to disciple me? This is why this fits perfectly in, in, in the teaching that Pastor Mike has been doing, even about social media. Social media is discipling me. It is shaping me. It is forming me all the time. It wants to. That's its goal. I have to be aware. I have to let the veil be pulled back. And remember that there's only one who could tear the veil. The veil was pulled back at the transfiguration. It was torn at Calvary. That's the one I ought to listen to. That's the one I need to disciple my heart. Not Athena, not Aphrodite, not Zeus, none of them. By what practices am I remembering God and the presence of God in the valley? Am I like the disciples who think, good, we're all square. Jesus made it right. I'll see him later when I'm dead. I'm good enough on my own now. The church has made that mistake over and over again. I need to be practicing his presence. The, the disciples forgot to practice the presence of God. They're confronted by evil and they didn't even pray. By what practices am I remembering the presence of God here in the valley? Because his presence is here. But sometimes I look in the mirror and walk away and forget what it looks like. Last question. Am I faithfully bringing attention to the presence of God in the valley? For this crowd of people still don't know where freedom can be found. For those in the throes of afflictions like addiction, depression, hopelessness, things that we want to write off and disenchant, how am I faithfully bringing attention to the presence of God in those moments for those people, those people that Jesus left the mountain to come into the valley to join? So our questions, what am I worshiping? What am I allowing to disciple me? By what practices am I remembering the presence of God here in the valley? And am I faithfully bringing attention to the presence of God? To all these people who keep building temples to all these lower G gods all around the globe every single day. Those are things that we should think about. Let's join Peter in a journey towards repentant helplessness and then bring attention to the kingship of Jesus. Let's reflect on these things for just a while together.